Welcome to Voices and Views V2.0. I'm your host, David Saslov, and with me today is Nick Fitzmorris of MEIC, the Montana Environmental Information Center. Nick recently joined MEIC as an energy transition engineer, managing energy campaigns throughout Montana, including one he will be presenting in joint sponsorship with Citizens for Clean Energy and the Montana branch of the Sierra Club on March 4th at the Great Falls Public Library. Nick, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Am I uh, correct in saying that uh, MEIC is the lead voice for the environment at the Montana legislature? I mean, we've been at the legislature for many years, so definitely a group that many look to in Montana and happy to be a part of this great organization. Yeah, it's been my experience that MEIC has also played a lead role in defeating hundreds of anti-environmental bills and uh, partnered with uh, Great Falls-based Citizens for Clean Energy in stopping the proposed Highwood Generating Station during a four-year period culminating in a landmark ruling in July 2010 that reaffirmed the critical role of zoning in protecting property rights. Do you, uh, do you know about that uh, particular event in history? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard of, of that in many of the big wins that MEIC has had over the years and happy to be um, working to keep adding to that list here. That's great. And I have to say, for the 11 most entertaining minutes from the 2023 legislative session, I encourage all my listeners to Google search Ann Hedges Senate someday as she attempts to explain to some of the Great Falls elected representatives uh, why carbon is a problem and <laughs> what it means for global warming and uh, and how we can potentially start thinking about it in a more uh, energy and uh, con- ecological way. But uh, getting on to our, uh, our topic of the day, uh, Nick, uh, it seems that nuclear energy has been gaining a lot of national attention lately, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. So can you start us off with a real high-level overview for us non-nuclear physicists of how traditional nuclear energy generation works and how it compares to other electricity generation sources? Yeah, thank you. So we um, at MEIC, myself and Ann Hedges, have been actually going to uh, a number of communities and talking about nuclear energy and um, we're excited to be headed to Great Falls soon to have more of that conversation. But it's interesting to see that nuclear energy and fission um, specifically really gaining momentum again in the the national discourse. And um, we've been paying attention to that and why that is. But before we dive too much into that, pretty much for um, a bird's eye view of what fission is, it's just uh, uh, one way to say it is a, an expensive way to boil water. All of our uh, traditional thermal electricity generation um, from fossil fuel sources, be that coal or gas burning to, to spin a turbine, kind of uses the same technology where you're boiling water, creating steam that turns a, a turbine and drives a generator to create electricity. and the technology in nuclear reactors is pretty similar, only it's using this pretty technologically involved process of fission where heavy radioactive elements 
decay in a chain reaction, and that creates a lot of energy, and they capture that and boil water and drive a turbine. But there's lots of things that um, go into that, lots of challenges, environmental concerns, and costs as well. Um, but at the end of the day, you're really using similar technology to create the electricity. Even wind turbines are just turning a turbine to drive a generator and create electricity. So, yeah, when we're talking about nuclear, there is just that end goal of turning a turbine like anything else. I see. It seems like we've been talking about nuclear fission as a viable energy alternative for over 50 years now. Uh, where, where and how much nuclear power has already been deployed in America to this point? And um, how would you characterize the most recent wave of nuclear enthusiasm to previous periods of excitement around this topic? Thanks. Yeah, and I'll give my, my best synopsis of where we're at with nuclear in the United States. Um, currently, I believe there's 93 reactors operating across the U.S., but most of these are located more on the East Coast or in the Midwest. There's not as many um, out West or in the Rocky Mountain region as well. I think right now they're supplying about 18% of the country's electricity, but what's important to to realize when we're looking into this history of nuclear is that most of the current operable nuclear electricity on the grid, um, those projects came online in the, the between the 70s and 90s, um, or I guess the 70s and up to 90, 1990. And there's really been not much development in that field in a really long time. And there's a number of reasons for that, um, kind of following World War II, the development of atomic energy kind of coincided with the development of the atomic bomb, and there's very similar technologies and processes at play there. There is really a desire to kind of shift the public image of nuclear, and um, after the use of the bomb, and there's a lot of steps along the way, eventually there is this Atomic Energy Commission that was created, and that was folded into the Department of Energy when that came online in the 70s. And really what, what's interesting about the Department of Energy is about two-thirds of their funding to this day is still centered around nuclear, both warheads and energy. So it's really um, kind of in the DNA of that organization. So that's a big reason why it's still such a, a big piece of what the Department of Energy is trying to do. Um, but the reason we haven't seen energy, um, nuclear energy development more recently is kind of around when some of these big uh, safety and environmental catastrophes happened, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, and more recently. Um, but out of the, the 70s and 80s, there's already a lot of economic challenges with the technology, and there is really struggle to keep it viable. It was expensive. It was um, had a lot of safety issues, and there's already kind of writing on the wall for the industry. And then when the these disasters happened, it was kind of a, the last nail in the coffin for a reason why why nuclear isn't wasn't uh, viable and 
we're seeing a bit of a resurgence in the public opinion, but there's still a lot of those underlying economic challenges that um, have been to some degree claimed to be addressed, but we're seeing recurrences of, of these issues that plagued the original reactors, and that's a lot about what we're talking about in our events across the state. I see. So would you, uh, would you discuss with me a little bit the notion of the newer small modular reactors and where we are with that technology and whether that represents a true stride forward in nuclear energy generation or not? Definitely. Thanks. And I'd also, um, I'd reference we, before going out into these different events across the state, we had a, we hosted a webinar that uh, is available from our website with um, David Schlissel, who was able to talk to us about some of this background and where things are at with the, um, small modular reactors, and that's, that recording is available. But kind of the, the deal with small modular reactors is part of this resurgence in the public discourse where the companies that are developing these designs are claiming that they've overcome a lot of the economic and safety challenges plaguing previous nuclear um, reactors. And really what it is is when nuclear technology was originally developed, they were pretty small scale. And at some point when these costs and other challenges were mounting, there is the idea that if they scaled those reactors to make these massive nuclear reactors that are what most of the power plants are operating today, then there'd be economies of scale to be realized, and maybe they would mitigate a lot of those issues. And what we ended up seeing is that wasn't really the case. There was, for one, a lot of these large-scale designs were uh, unique and individual in their own right, so there weren't, they weren't able to repeat the same design um, and gain learning from that. But now what we're seeing is after originally there is the claim that we were going to get economies of scales from growing the reactor size. Now the small modular reactor, the new claim is that instead we'll be gaining economies of scale from shrinking the reactor size, actually to a size much similar to the original thing. So in large part, it, it almost looks like going back to the beginning, and there's a lot of, I guess, concern on our end of what are we really gaining? Is this more of a PR stunt than anything else that um, now we have these smaller reactors that aren't actually able to generate as much power as the larger ones would be able to, and they're cheaper, but they're also cheaper because they're not generating, they're not as large. And I think per amount of electricity generated, those costs aren't necessarily gained back. Though the, the idea at least would be that the small modular reactor, you can manufacture it on, in a, kind of a geographically centralized factory manufacturing facility and then ship it out and build it on site. But really, these specific designs that a, a number of companies have been creating are not, they're smaller, but they're large enough and complicated enough that they're not really as modular as 
they would like you to believe. They have to be more more than likely built on site, and there's at least at this point not haven't seen a lot of the benefits that they're claiming. But I guess the the last point I would have there is really these these at this point are all talk because there's no small modular reactors in existence in the U.S. There's one design that was approved by the Nuclear Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the NRC, and that was the new scale um, SMR reactor design. They were working on a project, a pilot project out of Idaho Falls at the National Lab there, and that project failed this last year. So the one design that had been approved is no longer, it was canceled because of cost overruns and a lot of other issues. So now we're looking at this idea that has a lot of kind of public support, but really there's no actual, there's no product, there's no generator, there's no reactor. And supposedly around the world, there's three in operation, one in China, one in Russia, one in India, but there's really just no information about those. Sure. And just for my uh, listeners' sake, for those without a, a background in this topic, what, what makes a small modular reactor small versus large? Is there a cutoff in terms of energy capacity for generation, or are we talking about footprint of the plant? Uh, what, uh, what makes it small versus large? Sure, thanks. So it's specifically the, the size of the reactor, the number of megawatts that it's um, the nameplate capacity that it can produce, megawatt being a, a unit of electricity. Um, and as it's, as it's operating, you would see every hour that it operates at capacity that would create a megawatt hour, which converts to your kilowatt hour that you might see on electricity bill. But these small modular reactors are more in the range of, I think what I've seen is around 200 megawatts, give or take, while some of these much larger reactors that, that are on the grid and in operation are more in the 1,000 to 2,000 megawatt range. And I wouldn't cite those numbers specifically, but um, that, that'll give you the, the orders of magnitude. It's just really the, that capacity. But the, the idea with these small modular reactors, theoretically, is that they would be able to build a couple or um, up to, I think, maybe 12 and maybe gain that overall capacity by combining them. But yeah, there's not really an official cutoff, but my understanding is just that it's going to be generally a smaller reactor than what we're used to seeing. In terms of energy output, right? Exactly. Yeah. But, okay. So what about, uh, what about the concept of fusion in the nuclear discussion? I, I've heard some strategic or significant scientific breakthroughs in the popular press. I've been reading about recently about fusion. What, what's your response to people that say that uh, fusion is the answer to all of our energy challenges? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, and I think it's an important thing to, to address when we're talking about nuclear because there has been a lot of coverage of, of fusion. And um, I'll, I'll draw loop back to the beginning when we were talking about fission, where you have heavier elements decaying and creating energy. Fusion, on the other hand, is the opposite process where it's lighter elements, generally hydrogen, combining to form a slightly heavier element, that process also releases a bunch of energy. That's the process that 
happens in our sun, um, but there's very specific and kind of very intense temperatures, pressures at play in the sun and all stars that allow that to happen. So for a long time, it's kind of been seen as this potential energy future where we unlock the ability to sustain a fusion reaction where we can just create abundant, cheap energy. And there was a breakthrough in December of 22. There is the first ignition ever achieved where the amount of energy they put into one of their um, attempts at, at fusion was less than the amount of energy that was released. So they achieved fusion for only uh, the number I saw was a tenth of a nanosecond. So a tenth of a billionth of a second, they had this this reaction. So it was a huge breakthrough, and there's still hope that maybe that would be a solution down the road. But it's good to kind of keep perspective that it's kind of this technology that's been viewed as something that's decades out for many decades. So it's kind of the goalposts keep moving, and there has been this this big breakthrough, but there's a lot to be developed where that can be sustained for seconds, minutes, hours, days, indefinitely, and can be scaled up to generate electricity at utility scale. And all that still hinges on whether or not it can be economical when that would be produced. So when we're talking about shifting our energy sources and trying to decarbonize electricity generation, we're trying to address the climate crisis, which is imminent. It's now. We have years, maybe a couple decades at most, to to switch, turn things around. So nuclear fusion on that kind of time scale just isn't going to be viable. It's not going to be a player. And even when we um, come back to, to fission, the, the typical nuclear source, those projects even in themselves take as long as a decade, maybe two, to get online. There's a lot of hurdles to jump there. So even if those you can get electricity from, from either of those, they're not really on the same time scale that we're looking at for decarbonizing our energy. Yeah, it almost sounds like the kind of thing where you go to Vegas and you put a couple of chips on the zero and the double zero in hopes that they pay off long term. But uh, you're not you're not hoping to to make a huge immediate uh, return on those kinds of bets. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely something to to keep track of. And maybe hopefully one day that will be a part of the equation, but not not at the moment. And we're going to have to survive as a species long enough for that to pay itself off and, and become a reality. Agreed. So going back to then to, to the fission discussion, what, what would need to change about uh, nuclear fission approaches for them to become viable as energy sources and, and a welcome part of the MEIC idea of an energy portfolio going forward? Sure. Um, and I should have prefaced a lot of this just saying that nuclear energy, just as a, a point of discussion, is can be really controversial. It can be really um, polarized. There's a lot of – there's two – what I've seen is there's two camps that have a lot of, of backing, and there's not a lot of um, – there's a lot of kind of differing information between them of whether or not nuclear is this viable solution to the future. and. I, I found it's really easy to fall down a rabbit hole in either regard of the conspiracy for or against nuclear energy. So 
it's been interesting as I've done my own research, just trying to parse through all the details. But really what I see things boiling down to is that, I mean, there's the safety and environmental considerations that have been kind of points of debate for a really long time. But at the end of the day, nuclear as it exists right now is just far too expensive and really kind of uh, too much of a risk for utilities to be investing in this as a viable part of our energy portfolios. We've seen a lot of projects more than double their projected costs, and we're talking from um, the the recent example that comes to mind, I believe Vogel plant in Georgia was originally estimated at $14 billion and one of two plants just came online at the project's currently at around $36 billion and still growing. So there's, there's just the, the costs are through the roof and not comparable to the other options we have. So that's one factor. There's the construction timelines that I, I touched on before, but we'd really, if we're looking for these carbon-free energy sources, there's really the timeline we're working with in nuclear of as much as a decade or two isn't really going to be working for what we need. So specifically price and these the ability to build these things in a timely manner are the two most constricting factors. And I mean, at MEIC, we're not fully opposed to nuclear, but given the facts we have right now, it's just not something that we're really putting our, want to put the money of ratepayers and taxpayers behind it because it's not going to be the most viable option given all the things we have right now. And there are a lot of other solutions. There's really abundant, especially in Montana, wind that can be additionally tapped into. And um, what we're really going to be talking about in our event coming up in Great Falls is kind of these other options that we have, seeing as there's so many things challenging nuclear at the moment um, that it's not the only option. And there's a, kind of a, a sentiment I've seen with this becoming such a large um, talking point recently is that people are desperate for a silver bullet solution to decarbonize energy. And there's really no silver bullet solution, which is the unfortunate thing. But the, the fortunate thing to that is that we have all these different smaller interrelated pieces that can really work together and create um, a system that that is affordable, that's safe, that's reliable, that is clean, and doesn't have all these other drawbacks that we've seen sure. with nuclear. Sure, sure. And then going back to that, that clean point, I mean, it seems like when we talk about cost, right now we've talked mostly about cost of constructing and cost of generating, but don't we also have to look, if we're going to do a fair apples-to-apples apples comparison, we also have to look at the cost of disposal of waste, don't we? I mean, where where does the existing uh, waste go when generated oh, mostly on the East Coast, as you said? But where where does all the nuclear uh, byproducts and uh, and waste get stored? And how expensive is right. it to uh, how expensive is it to uh, get it there and uh, transport it and make sure it doesn't uh, you know cause human sickness? 
Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I mean, I've been really focusing on the economic side, and that's a lot of what we've been talking about at MEIC. But it's really because that, that's the first point. But once you get through all that, then you still have to deal with the safety concerns, the environmental concerns, and there's a lot of them. The the safety concerns are valid of this being a pretty dangerous technology. There's a lot of precautions in place, and um, the, the designs do have fail-safes and um, lots of things. But, yeah, we talk about the radioactive nuclear waste. There's currently no long-term repository in the United States, and I'm I'm not sure, I can't speak to the world, but I don't know if there's any where at the moment all the spent fuel at these sites are just stored on site in these concrete casks that are rated for hundreds of years perhaps of of safe storage, but they're not going anywhere. There's not, it's not a permanent solution and any efforts that the United States has taken to create permanent solutions have not come to fruition. So that's, once you get through the economic and timeline issues, then you encounter this this additional thing of what do we do with the waste in the end? And we can't just be putting it off for the next hundred years where it's going to just sit wherever you build this plant and hope that that site remains intact and that keeps safe and doesn't um, enter into the environment. But and, and, yeah, that doesn't even address the cost of these things. And I, I personally can't speak to what it would cost to create a long-term solution. That would be a, a deep underground um, kind of almost reverse mining operation where you just deposit it. And I know the one project that they had, they uh, upon studies, they figured out that it was going to contaminate groundwater. So they had to cancel that. So there's that issue. Uh, I also... I uh, didn't even note the the challenge of uranium mining, and we've seen the prices of uranium increasing again recently with the kind of national fervor around nuclear, and that has its own environmental injustice concerns. A lot of those deposits are on or near uh, reservation land and already affecting historically disadvantaged, marginalized groups. So there's a lot of justice concerns around that. So there's there's a lot of layers. And um, like I mentioned at the start, when we're just talking about an expensive way to boil water, that's where we start thinking about, okay, we have these other options. So why why are we still really digging our heels in on nuclear when maybe it's not all that it's cracked up to be? Got it. Thanks so much, Nick. Uh, this is my last uh, question, and uh, we're really looking forward to having you come and, and add some visuals uh, and some uh, in-person attention to this question. Can you give us uh, here in Great Falls some, some light reading uh, or homework to prepare for your presentation on alternative energy futures and why uh, we shouldn't put too big a bet on nuclear at the Great Falls Public Library? And uh, and as you as you send us off to do that light reading or that homework, maybe on the MEIC website, uh, basically give us the the final sort of MEIC official stance on nuclear electricity in Montana. Sure, thanks. And I, I'll say that there's going to be very much 
a focus on the Montana context at our event. So I hope that listeners come and hear that side of things. There's there's a lot to it, and um, it's been good to get out and, and talk with folks. A few things, if, if you're looking to kind of prime yourself for this discussion, we I mentioned there's the recording of this talk from David Slishel on move, moving forward without nuclear. You can find that just searching uh, for on MEIC's website. There's also a lot of media coverage in Montana after the cold weather event in January, and there's a lot of talk about reliability and what these options are. And we had some, some stances at MEIC pushing back to people pointing at that as a reason for these fossil fuel sources. There's a lot of good good content there. And also this Thursday, I'll be hosting a webinar um, with MEIC on the Montana energy transition. So there's you can tune into that as well. That's going to be at 4.30, I believe. Um, and lots, lots of different pieces here. But I, I would like to, I guess, leave you all at the end. And I, I touched on this, but really that we're we're an environmental organization MEIC and there's we're truly concerned about the environmental implications of nuclear but the reason that we have been hesitant is really this economic factor we've seen rates increasing astronomically for electricity in Montana already we don't want to be burdened with nuclear we've seen other states that have had failed nuclear projects where that the cost of those projects, even though they never actually generated electricity, were passed on to the ratepayers. And we don't want that to happen where we're already paying so much. So we're really focusing on the, the more affordable options that are readily available to us and keeping an open mind for future developments. But at the moment, that's where we stand. Thank you so much, Nick. Nick Fitzmorris recently joined MEIC, the Montana Environmental Information Center, as an energy transition engineer and will be appearing at the Great Falls Public Library's Courtingly Room on March 4th from 5.15 to 6.30 p.m. and snacks will be provided. You can call 406-453-0349 for more details and you'll also find a link to the event on the Electron at kgpr.org electron. Nick, thank you so much again for appearing on Voices and Views V2.0. Thanks so much for having me. Until next time, this is David Saslov, your host for Voices and Views V2.0.